Okay, so our plan this morning is to discuss this morning, I know there were holdover questions from the last week or two, and then we can get back to the, the study through spiritual gifts if, if we have time. So any questions from this morning or last week or the week before? I'm pretty sure the last two weeks, I mean it was Alyssa, so I don't know if it counts, but... Um, Oh, okay. Um, my, okay, sorry. This is just um, okay. repartee. Okay. Simeon, would you be so kind? And Alyssa. Okay. Any, any questions, thoughts, complaints, a haiku? Don Carpenter. Get the mic over to Don. Don, if it makes you feel any better, I've had at least three people who listen to these things thank us for doing this. Uh, Otherwise, all they hear is, uh, Don, (laughs) unidentified person who wants to remain anonymous. Otherwise, they hear this long pause. That's a good question. I think that, you know, so, okay. If, if If the centurion knew that Jesus, I mean, he had to know that Jesus was God. Obviously, he recognized the authority. Then could we assume that he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And if he was looking for the Messiah, could we assume that he was a Jewish, what's the word, proselyte? Or? Proselyte? It's, it's, no, that's a great question. Go to Acts 10. I tend to think if he wasn't, he soon became one. Luke has a term, um, go to Acts 10, that, they gen- that he will frequently use to identify a, pro- a proselyte is a Gentile convert to Judaism. It usually involved adult circumcision. They were allowed in the court of the Gentiles. That's what Paul did to Timothy. Yeah. Um, and uh, what we get in Acts 10, and the term usually designated for them is a God-fearer. Seems to be somewhat of a technical term to identify proselytes. It's entirely possible he was. I'll show you Luke used that in Acts 10 with Cornelius. So in Acts 10 with Cornelius, um, Peter has this vision, um, and uh, where's the group of people who come up in uh, verse 23? Uh, No, no, 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. Now there's that term, God-fearer. And and even from extant extra-biblical sources, that appears to be the title for a proselyte. Luke doesn't use that for the centurion. That doesn't mean he isn't, but he could have said that. He could have said that. But still, what do we get from a guy who loves the nation of Israel? He builds a synagogue so that God's word can be taught, and he's confident Jesus. Yeah, I I think we can assume a fair amount of content of this guy's faith. And so if he'd called him, this is man as a God-fearer, we'd know, proselyte. He still might be. You just got to explain to them why doesn't Luke identify him as one. He could be. He's certainly saved. There's no way the guy whose faith amazes Jesus isn't justified. Um, but that's a, it's a good question. The only trick, the only reason I didn't go there is because he, Luke will in Acts refer to Cornelius as a God fear. He doesn't hear, so I don't know. I don't know how much of this this guy is putting together and how much of it was put together and how much of it's being put together as he works through it. You know, um, excellent question. Thank you. Excellent. Question. We've got a question in the back. So kind of related to that. Um, so when he says in Luke 7, 
Lord, is he saying master then, or is he... Oh, I think absolutely so, absolutely. Okay. Now, the, the word kurios, my Greek students and my dropouts, um, <laughs> my best student dropped out, okay? I'm still sore over that. He's gonna move to Norwalk too, I bet, but. Um, <laughs> so, what, this, what, are the, what does kurios mean? What are the, what are the glosses for Corios? Uh, Lord, Master, Sir. Lord, Master, Sir. There is that range of meaning. It can simply mean Sir. Um, more rightly, it means Lord, Master. In fact, the word Corios relates to doulos, slave. Doulosses have Corioses. Slaves have masters. Um, which the, a lot of the English Bibles are reticent or unwilling to translate doulos as slave, like even here, servant. The problem is it, it makes a bunch of texts not even make any sense. No servant can have two masters. Of course you can. No slave can have two masters. You can have two jobs. You can work for McDonald's or you can work for Target. A slave can only have one kurios. The whole point is this guy's recognizing, and here's, here's my argument for why I think he's saying Lord. Just like Peter, when he falls down on his face, says, depart from me, Kurios. He's not saying sir. He's recognizing himself in a chain of command and a hierarchy. And he has, he's a Kurios over due losses. He's a Kurios, he's a lord over his men beneath him. And then he's recognizing his place in a much greater chain of command where Jesus is over him. So absolutely, I think he's calling Jesus master when he says, you can just say, you don't need to come be bothered with me. What Daniel said at communion was spot on. I, as a man over a hundred, know how irritating it can be to have my men come and ask me about everything. I delegate. I have guys go do things for me. I don't show up personally and deal with everything. He's recognizing that he himself, likewise, is so much below Jesus in the chain of command, not just one notch or two notches, that in his view, why should you be troubled to come all the way to my house? So absolutely, I think he's recognizing Jesus as Lord slash Master. That's the respect he's giving to him. It's not like Jesus is just one notch above him and you're dealing with a lieutenant and a captain. This is somebody who's basically saying, it would be a bother for you to have to come to my house and you shouldn't be bothered to come to my house. And I know what that's like because I have the military chain of command. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I'd, I'd say very much so. That's what we're dealing with here. And coming out of the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus brings that to a climax by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? So when this man, linked with that, calls him Lord, and Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith, I'd be hard-pressed to think it means anything other than what it meant in the Sermon on the Plain. Um, another good question. Excellent. Questions? JP, wait for the microphone. Can you comment on the differences between Matthew 8's account and Luke's? Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Well, let's also factor in John 4, which I don't think is the same thing. But, okay. That's another thing didn't touch on this morning. Um, this and the account in Matthew appear to be the same event. Some people have suggested John 4 is also the same event. I don't think so. But if you go to Matthew 8, let's go to Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount, which, again, I told you some people think is the same sermon as the Sermon on the Plain. It's possible. I don't tend to think it is, but it's actually for reasons like this that people think it is, because immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, you have this account. Well, actually, not immediately. There's a healing of a leper, then there's this account. But 
that makes people think it's the same thing. But Jesus is preaching every day, every week. I, I don't see any reason he couldn't have preached two similar sermons days apart, and then this happens. But whatever. It, it doesn't ultimately matter whether you conclude the Sermon on the Plain is the Sermon on the Mount or a similar sermon. I don't think much depends on that. Okay, Matthew 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, the soldiers under me, and I say to one, go and he goes, to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this or that. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. A couple differences to notice. One, Luke omits the, um, the, the, the woe upon the natives, which we get here, right? No problem there. Matthew wants to draw attention to the contrast. No one in Israel responds like this, and you guys in Israel, you're just... <laughs> and he says stuff like that later in Luke. Where he says to Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum? No, you'll be dragged down to hell or to Hades. Probably the biggest difference or apparent difference is here the guy comes out to meet with Jesus, and in Luke he doesn't, right? Any other big differences, or is that the big one? Okay. Um, I, I think the answer is simply this. Luke even treats the delegation, the second delegation, as so representing the centurion that they speak for him. And then Jesus marvels at him, not them. So I think Matthew's saying accurately enough, the centurion, he doesn't say by means of a delegate, come out and meet with Jesus. But Luke is so willing to identify the friends as speaking for the man that Jesus responds not to them but to the man that I'd simply say, yeah, the centurion came out and met Jesus by sending some people to go talk for him. And Luke gives us the greater detail. I, I don't think there's fundamentally any contradiction. What? Telescoping. Sure. Or it's just summary statements. You know what I mean? Um, if, if I, let me try to think of an example. If I say something like, I got a hold of JP and asked him, da, 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 da. Well, I did it by having Elsa ask him. But can't I say, I got a hold of JP and asked him to, you know, not drop out of Greek? And, um... <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. It's not like he's got a baby coming or anything, you know? Um, that's November, Okay. Sorry. No, no sympathy from mom. Wow. Okay. 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 Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, that to me is not a big difficulty. Um, simply by seeing how much Luke identifies the people with the man. Um, yeah. Any, I mean, any questions? If you don't buy that, that's fine. Let's press it further if you want. But does that work? Or Yes, Alyssa. Mike? Uh, my study Bible said to reference John 3. Four. John three seventeen. Yeah. And For God sent not a sentence of the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. I think it's referencing four. I said three, and then I three seventeen is for God did not send his sentence to the world. Yeah. Okay. I read it. Okay. But, so you, um, you sounds like you have a question for the writers of your study Bible. 
I was going to read the rest of the rest. Oh, okay. okay. Did I interrupt you? I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> Continue. Um, it's about God sending his son. Mm. And John's favorite designation of Jesus is that the son sent by the father, uh, that the son is sent by the father. There was a familiar concept in Jewish life that the messenger is like the sender himself. Uh, Jesus is that sent one, par excellence, uh, a lot of references. Being sent, in the case of both Jesus and his followers, implies that the commission, charge, and message are issued by the sender rather than ordinating with the one who is sent. Excellent. I, I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, let me, okay, let me back that up. Thank you. Let me back that up even further. Go to First uh, Samuel. Okay? First Samuel... No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so, in 1 Samuel, Samuel warns, um, warns, date, warns Saul not to offer a sacrifice until he shows up on the seventh day. And Saul, the seventh day is waning. It's starting to almost be dark. He gets nervous. He lights the sacrifice. Then Samuel shows up. And Samuel says to him, why did you despise the word of the Lord? And Saul doesn't say, it wasn't the word of the Lord, it was your word. Samuel so identifies as God's speaker that to disobey, disbelieve what Samuel says when he's functioning as a prophet is to disbelieve and disobey the one who sent him, the Lord. Actually, we won't look it up. That'll take too much time. But you can cross-check those types of things. And it, when, when someone's sent as an envoy, they're them. They are that person's representative, and the text will deal with them as that person. Even so that Jesus is not amazed at them, but at him. They have rightly communicated the centurion, so Jesus is literally interacting with the centurion. He's amazed at the centurion, not at the centurion's messengers. Um, oh. Uh, that passage starts at 1310, by the way. 1310? Yeah. Thank you. I was, yeah, I was looking around for it, and it wasn't underlined. Um, okay. Yeah, First Samuel, let's look it up since we found it. 1310. Um, there it is. <laughs> as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? When I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Saul is such a victim. I made myself do it. I didn't want to. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Well, actually, it was Samuel who commanded him for God. Thus, God commanded him. Yeah. Thank you. Elsa. I have a quick question on that. Um, did Samuel purposely delay to taste Saul? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he was wrestling with the prince of the power of Persia. I don't know. I just, I just know. It sure looks like that. It sure looks like that. He, but I don't know whether that was the Lord's doing and Samuel got caught up in some stuff or if the Lord told Samuel show up at the very last minute or if Samuel got delayed I don't know certainly I think in God's providence it was a test that Saul failed um, 
Saul failed, absolutely, but I, I don't know why he did that. It's kind of like, uh, I remember someone, MacArthur, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan and why, why did this guy do this? He's like, they're not real people. <laughs> they're part of a parable. They don't have motives. <laughs> like, I don't know why this guy did this because he never happened. You know, um, sorry, I don't, I don't know why Samuel, in this case, this is real. Sorry, that's probably a bad example, just made me think of it. But, but uh, I just love the point. It's like, well, what was, people like psychoanalyzing, you know, the, the, the Good Samaritan and stuff. Like, These aren't real people. It's a story. Um, Elsa wants, she, was, she wants the mic. So these passages with the centurion and his slave, that's used a lot by the gay and lesbian people to say that, that this was actually a partner to the centurion. It's easy to say yeah. lots no, e- no, it's easy to say lots yeah. of things. It's a lot harder to back it up. And then they say, well, Jesus never said anything about that relationship. So oh, didn't he proves he? of Okay. Of Let's that. do that. Let's do that then. Okay. Um, <laughs> fine. 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 Okay. Okay. Let's do that. First off, there's nothing in the Greek. Okay, here's the assumption. This is the corruption, by the way, of, of some of the gay lesbian agenda. A man shows concern for a servant must be gay. That's the logic. No, that's the logic. There's only one explanation for why a Roman slave owner would be concerned about his slave. I, let's start backwards. You could suggest that a lot of what this guy did was politically shrewd. If you're going to rule over the Jews, build him a synagogue, make him happy with you. All that flies out the window the second Jesus commends his faith, right? This guy's building of the synagogue is genuine. This guy's love for Israel is genuine. This guy's concern for his servant is genuine because we know he's a man of great faith. So, is it possible that some slave owners and masters are very concerned about their slaves because of lust? It's possible. That all flies out the window. There's nothing in the text that suggests this. You've got to fill in the blank spaces with your, you know, get, kind of like get your mind out of the gutter. Really? A guy can't have compassion on somebody without it being, well, I really just wants to get him in bed. Really? Really? Nothing in the Greek suggests this. None of the commentaries, none of the church readings of this has ever suggested this until the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just pasting stuff in. That's part one. Any questions on part one? Anyone have any other reasons why this might be homoerotic or something? Part two, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Okay, let's try to take that one on. Okay. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 5. Okay? Matthew 5. Two passages in Matthew, and we'll briefly try to deal with this. Okay, Matthew five seventeen. Okay, Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. 
And I can show you a dozen such passes, passages where Jesus grabs the entire Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, which is a handhold for the Torah, or the Tanakh, and he will speak of such absolute authority. It's easy to show Jesus has the highest view of inerrancy and inspiration. So here's my question. When Jesus says the Law and the Prophets, does that include Leviticus? Just, does that include the passages that speak to all those different topics? Absolutely, Jesus affirmed everything the Old Testament said. Everything the Old Testament said about adultery, everything the Old Testament said about homosexuality, everything the Old Testament said about fornication and drunkenness, and every other topic the Old Testament spoke to, Jesus, without any qualification, gave the entire Old Testament the highest possible statements. So to try to pit him against that is absurd. Jesus never spoke on this topic. Yes, he did. When he affirmed the inerrancy down to the letter and the stroke on the letter of the entire Old Testament. Furthermore, Matthew 19. (sighs) These are are arguments people who don't know their Bibles make. You know, seriously, these are... hmm. Okay. Matthew 19, verse 3. Pharisees came to him, testing him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer true but one. Jesus just quoted the formula that Moses wrote in Genesis for what constitutes marriage. By exclusion, it ain't other things. You get what I'm saying? Like, he said it positively, but there's an absolute continuity. He's quoting the formula of Genesis 2 for what is marriage. A man leaving his father and mother, the two coming together and holding, becoming one flesh. God made the male and female. Jesus absolutely spoke to these issues. Yes. But that's Paul. That's not Jesus. See, no, this, this again gets back to, no, this gets back to, again, it's stupid arguments. Now we're going to pit the Holy Spirit against Jesus. Because that's just Paul. No, 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 but that's their argument. There's a whole bunch of Christians, quote unquote, let me use scare quotes, Christians, who really like Jesus but don't like Paul. I'm, right? You know what I'm talking about. And they love Jesus. And they don't like Paul. Because Paul does speak clearly to some of these things, Right? And so you're, when you're trying to pit Jesus against Paul, you're pitting the Holy Spirit against Jesus. It's not a good idea. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but no, absolutely Jesus speaks to this. Absolutely speaks to this. Jeremy. Yes. yes. Zeb wants to weigh in. Yes. Just a, just a comment on the Jesus versus Paul thing. Jesus was speaking to a culture that was completely familiar and completely understood the the godly sexual ethic yeah. of monogamous heterosexual yes. relations. Paul was the apostle to who? The Greeks. The Gentiles. People who were pagan and had no background in any of this stuff. So when Paul went into these cultures that had no background in, in what God had said in regards to sexual immorality, of course he had to deal with that. Jesus didn't. Like right. the, the idea that Paul 
had the, the idea that Paul and Jesus had different standards is absolutely absurd, even yeah. just with a precursory glance yeah. at their contexts. Right. Yeah. Let me, yeah, let me flesh that even more. Jesus didn't need to unpack some of these specific things because these weren't sins Israel struggled with. It, there was no debate in Israel about sex ethics. There was some debate over when you could divorce your wife or how or why he deals with that. But there was no debate over, like, are some of these things okay? You go to the Roman world, there's all sorts of debate. Paul has to speak very clearly to them. It's kind of like, I don't have to, like, often counsel people not to pray demons into things. Now, you go down and do ministry in Africa and other places, that's going to be an issue, right? But we have no such, you go, you go down to churches, they'll have a whole big developed section on demonology in churches in Africa and other places where voodoo and, and things take place because that's their context. We, we don't have any such thing in our statement of faith. So we must think that that stuff's okay, right? I mean, heck, we only put our amendment on marriage in last year. Clearly, up until last year, we thought that was okay, right? You see how bad of an argument that is? Um, you know, that's, that's the point. That Jesus would have no need to clarify that point because every one of his listeners would have agreed with him. Any more than I need to spend time telling people they ought not to pray demons into things. It's just not one of our besetting sins we struggle with. And when Paul goes to the Roman Empire, guess what? It is. And so they deal with that. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, yes, yes, Elsa. So in one of these debates, one of the guys pushing this jail, yes. Keith yeah. said, um, why can we just not stick to love your neighbor as yourself? Why do we have to go back to Leviticus and all that? But that is where that scripture comes from. Yes. Between all that Loving it, yeah, there's a great, yeah, there's a tremendous, yeah, there's a tremendous irony when someone says, can't we just love your neighbor as yourself and not deal with Leviticus? Loving your neighbor as yourself is a quotation of Leviticus 19. And that's what I mean. The people making these arguments don't know their Bibles. They, they really don't. Um, honest, people who do know the Bible recognize you can't fit these things together. It's, it's only people from like a 10,000 yard surf flying over the top try to claim you can fit everything together. People have actually studied it recognize, yeah, no way. There's no way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating at times when people make stupid arguments. But anywho. Um, other questions, thoughts? Um, yes, can't we just love our neighbor and not deal with Leviticus? <sighs> not anytime soon, Simeon, not anytime soon. Any other, okay, questions, thoughts? We've got 10 minutes left, come on. Yes, Renee. Hold on. Jeremy, I just want to publicly thank you and Daniel for your faithful preaching and teaching. We are so blessed. Oh, thank That's you. That's a statement, not a question. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I want to pause and say one other thing. You just saw some of my vexation and frustration. I'm not frustrated or vexed with people struggling with those issues. It's only smart people making terribly twisted arguments that I find vexing. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand that the sort of the, you know, is directed at people struggling with those issues. The is directed at people making terribly false arguments and leading the church astray. My frustration is towards the, the evangelists of a new ethic. So please don't confuse that, especially after we talked about loving your enemy and stuff. I don't want anyone to misunderstand 
why I want to pull my hair out sometimes. It's because people make those arguments. People, other people go, yeah, no, that's a good point. What do you do? And you're just like, you're quoting Leviticus. <laughs> Carol. I, I was just going to, I'm sure everybody's familiar with this, with this train of thought, but the, the, um, the passage where the woman's caught in adultery. Yeah. And um, Jesus shows the ultimate compassion and uh, says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. But then people who think like that like to cut off the last part. Go and, and sin, sin no, no more. more. Yeah. And uh, it's implying, um, yes, I have compassion on you, but I know you're going to repent mm. and go and sin no more. And, and that's the part with homosexuality, too. You know, we, sure, we, we love and we have compassion, yeah. but go and sin no more. Well, they want to leave that part off. Well, and, and, and like I said, we've got to make distinguish. We've got to distinguish between our stance with people who struggle with various sins and our stance with people who want to make an apologetic and argue that evil is good. And those are two very different things. And we should have the utmost compassion for sinners and people struggling with all manners of sin, and we ought not to. And I think at times we do view some sins as worse than others. It's generally the ones I don't struggle with. Funny how that works. I've never seen a million man march against pride. Okay, fair enough, right? Okay. And we can at times look down our noses at certain sins. Certain sins are unacceptable. Certain sins are respectable. And we got we to gotta be done with that. And, and we need to be welcoming and embracing the people who struggle with all manner of things. On the other hand, Jude writes that we're to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered for all the saints and contending for truth and what is right and what is wrong and that's that's a separate matter and and i think we need to take a firm stance with that an uncompromising stance with that but recognizing there's a distinction between the person arguing for the agenda and trying to make the argument this is good this is right and the bible even agrees with me which is you know infuriating and dealing with the actual people who are struggling with these things. Two totally different things. Um, and so don't mistake firmness, dogmatism, um, zeal on the apologetic issue as in any way the way that I or Christians ought to relate to the actual people struggling with these things. You know what I mean? Does that, does that distinction is critical. You don't want people to go out and like, you know, you know, Jesus didn't break a bent reed. He didn't put out a smoldering wick. And, and we need to, to, as well, be compassionate. And, and uh, sadly, I mean, the culture keeps saying, I was listening to Al Mohler, why do we keep talking about this issue? We keep talking about this issue because the culture keeps bringing it up. You know what I mean? Um, I'd love to not talk about this issue. I would love to not talk about this issue. Um, okay, did I say a hand? We've got five minutes. Oh, hey, microphone, Elsa. Just, I mean, just our mic holder is camped out near you. Yeah, okay. Okay. Just to support what, what Carol yeah. said, if you yeah. look in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, after it's listed all the sins, um, Paul says, and such were some of you. Yeah. So they were repentant. They didn't right. keep on in that sin. It, yeah, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. I'll just close out our time here. I want to make a couple observations from that, and we'll close our time while we're dealing with this. Might as well. Because um, 
One of the things that I think is important to grasp, and this gets back to the whole notion of us not being respecters of sins, the New Testament, in agreement with the Old Testament, is emphatically clear that homosexuality is sin, but it never really singles it out amongst other sins. It's not the great sin. It's not in its own category. It's right alongside of other sins that you and I struggle with. This paragraph will indict every one of us. And so the, there's two dangers. One is to succumb to the cultural pressure and say, well, I guess it's okay. The other is to make it into the one big sin. It's neither. It's, it's a list of a whole bunch of behaviors that are not compatible with Christianity. Let's read it. Um, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, drunk adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revelers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You see how Paul is clear, and yet he's not singling it out. Uh, all of us, at various ways, are getting indicted. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we, we also want to make sure we're not making it sound like homosexuality is the great and unforgivable sin. It's sin. Fornication is sin. Drunkenness is sin. It's all sin. That's how Paul puts it in the list. And sadly, because the culture keeps bringing it up, we can give the impression that this is all we want to talk about. Trust me, I, I'm tired of talking about this issue. I'm happy to move on. But so we, we want to have the balance right. There are churches, sadly, that you make it sound like this is the bad one. And Paul just throws it right in there with greedy. Or you drink too much. Or you had sex before marriage. Or you had sex with someone else while you were married. Or all sorts of other things. You know? Things that I think we all recognize, yeah, that's something that could happen to me, or that's anyway. Any thoughts, final thoughts, or observations as we come to a close? Or we can get out two minutes early. Yes. Carol, use a microphone. No, wait for the mic. When, um, when the Supreme Court decided that uh, gay marriage was, was okay, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned it to my, uh, I came up with my 87-year-old dad, and his first words out of his mouth was, sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. And um, I'm, I'm just thinking of the, um, it, you know, our, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, which is not a story, it's a historical event. And I'm wondering, while homosexuality is not any greater than any of those other sins, like you said, mm. I have read, and maybe other people have read more about this, that when a culture reaches its final days and homosexuality becomes a norm, that's kind of like, like the last nail in the coffin after every other sin has showed itself. I don't right. know, what do you think about that thought? Oh, I think there's far greater sins our country has. I, I, I found a horrifying fact this week. Let me, we're gonna go one minute over, I gotta share with you what I learned this week, okay. So you know how you hear about how in the Middle Ages the average life expectancy was like mid-30s? That's ridiculous, but you know why they say that? Because they're factoring in infant mortality. The, the bottom line was if you made it out of early childhood, you lived to be 70, 80 years old. But 
it was regular for families to have 10 kids and four or five of them die in early childhood. And so our modern medicine has not so much extended our life as we've done a lot with cleaning up infant mortality because Moses in Psalm 90 writes the year of a man's life for 70 or by force of strength 80. And I think a white female's average age of death is like 86 or something. We have not pushed that very far in you know, 3,000 years. What we have done is we have a lot less women dying in labor. Okay, what's the average life expectancy when you factor in abortion? It's lower than it was during the Middle Ages. We are losing more children now through abortion than we ever did through infant mortality in the Middle Ages. We've actually gone backwards. A friend of mine did the, did the research, looked up the data. It was, um, I think, between women and children, for every 1,000 births, it was 180 women and children who died. We're over 200. For every live birth, we have over 200 abortions. So, yeah. So when we hear about average life expectancy, you gotta factor in life. And all of a sudden that number drops back down to the 30s again. So, any, yes, Wendell. And I'd say that type of thing is the type of thing I'd expect judgment for. But I'm not God and I don't know what's gonna tip his scales, but I look at something like that, I just, I'm amazed we haven't been blown up long ago. Wendell, bring us home, Wendell. since we're off the subject anyway, another thing, and I, I probably pay more attention to this than most people in the room because uh, it's uh, something near and dear to my heart, uh, but uh, the uh, Secretary of the Army was appointed this week um, was a, is an only gay individual. Um, that in itself, you know, and like you said, a lot of times we have, uh, we put uh, emphasis on certain sins Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that did, that bothered me even more than that was the way our culture. Um, there's so many things, so much garbage that comes along with that. On attitude of uh, just different philosophies, there. Um, I, I always wondered why in Revelation, uh, you know, the United States isn't mentioned, and uh, I think, and it's been discussed many, many times over that probably because of our will to fight, will to be so acceptable, it's better to accept certain ideologies than to kill thousands and millions of people. I wouldn't disagree with that entirely. However, I can see now how that can certainly happen because um, with our will to fight, with the ideologies that come along with that, um, it's <laughs> not, I mean, it's kind of like if you live long enough, you'll start seeing lights at the end of the tunnel where God's uh, uh, prophecy, uh, not only in, in the Old Testament, has come true, mm. but it will continue to come true with the way our culture is headed. And I think that's what is so disheartening is that there's so many people that are willing to make these subtle changes without looking down the line of everything else that will change with that. Um, because the military is just a cross-section of society. It lo- uh, takes a little longer to react, uh, obviously, but uh, it, we're well on our way. And uh, I think... How's about this one? With, the, with having women register for the draft, we're exactly. getting ready I mean, those to call th- upon and demand our women fight and die for us. This is just... 
Shameful. The opening. It, it's shameful. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so many r- things wrong with it. And it, and it just uh, really strengthens you, my... You've got to recognize that like, tribes in Africa have more honor than we do exactly. now. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, it just r- strengthens my uh, uh, demeanor to uh, pray more, more yeah. heartily, because that's, uh, at this point, I think that's obviously... I should have been doing it all along, and I think most of us have, but... Uh, yeah. You know, God's word is going to, uh, he will hold true to his word. He's faithful. He, you know, well, so, uh, God doesn't need America to make the gospel go forth, right? Nothing will stand in the way of his church. Plenty of things might stand in the way of countries, but God's purposes will not fail. We've gone over. See you all next week. God bless.